Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to Bullshift, the podcast where we talk about behavioral insights and personal finance and specifically where we talk about how optimism bias can uh, frame your thinking and how the financial services industry shifts your attention to make you feel more bullish. My name is John DeGuy. I'm the host of the podcast, and I'm also the author of the book, Bullshift. Welcome. My guest this week is Warda Malik. Warda is the CEO of BE Works in Toronto, which is a consulting firm that focuses on behavioral insights. Her mission is to help business, business leaders and governments make better decisions using behavioral science. She joined BE Works as a founding member and has grown her team to help businesses across all sectors think differently about the people they are serving. And specifically, findings from behavioral economics and social psychology reveal unique customer insights, and that helps businesses leverage their services to better serve their clients. Wardell, welcome. Thank you, John. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me today. Because of the unique work being done by BE Works, and behavioral insights and the way people think about decision making. I'm wondering if you could perhaps just share a little bit about your background, how you came to do what you do, how you think about things and, and what the work is that BE Works does. Yeah, absolutely. Happy to. So my background is in psychology. And while I was in university, I became excessively curious about why people did the things that they did and oftentimes in ways that were counterintuitive and surprising. I remember wondering when I would go to buy a lottery ticket as a student, why I would have this optimism that I was already holding the winnings from the ticket. I hadn't even scratched a thing, but there's this burst of energy and positivity that you get that causes you to believe that you might be the lucky winner. It's this this luck, this we are more likely to experience positive events. And so I started to become curious as to why that was happening. And would that cause people to spend differently before they've even scratched that lottery ticket? So those were some of the questions I started to explore. I was working in the lab of Professor Nina Mazar. And this was quite a bit before the boom of behavioral economics as we know it today, which is wonderful because industry is starting to realize that we know a lot about the technology around us, but we actually don't know too much about what's happening inside the minds of people. And so we end up designing things in our environment and for our customers, our employees, or our constituents, assuming that they're gonna be as responsive to the things that we believe to be true. Like, of course, if this information is persuasive to me, then it's going to change other people's behavior or let's just introduce new incentives because of course people are going to respond to getting more. But after decades of research and taking a look at some of the policies out there, we know that information and incentives are not enough. There's a whole sort of other set of tactics and techniques that are aligned to the ways that people think and change their behavior that have historically been untapped. And that's the role that BE Works plays in 
helping our customers across a number of sectors get a better sense of what's happening in the minds of people and how to get how to use that knowledge to develop better programs, products, and policies that change behavior. I'm, I couldn't help but wonder it was when I was listening to you speak about the Freakonomics books by, by Levitt and Dubner. I, I, I think you're familiar with, uh, with them. And Stephen Levitt is a, is a prof at the University of Chicago and Dubner is a, is a, is a journalist. And the thing they always talk about in, in their Freakonomics books is people respond to incentives. And what I heard you say is that people don't always respond to incentives, or perhaps they don't respond as well as they could or should, or the way we expect them to. Could you perhaps expand upon the role of incentives in behavioral economics and public policy in general? Yeah, absolutely. So incentives, if they are large enough and frequent enough and immediate enough, can change behavior. But that means that you have to keep paying people to get them to do things. Um, if we think about our RRSPs and the incentive that we get, the company top-ups to the government top-ups and the amount of money that we get at a future point in time, that has not been enough. We're still struggling to ensure that Canadians are prepared for retirement or have a fund available to them. Interest, I guess, is a form of incentive that you're getting at a later time. It's, you know, perhaps free money that you might be able to earn, and yet that's not enough. We are still spending our money today. There's plenty of rebate programs that we see that the energy sector is struggling to get people to take advantage of. So these programs exist and yet uptake is really small. So there's something else beyond the financial incentive as a tool for persuasion that is much more effective. When you talk about social norms, for example, there were studies done and you're comparing, perhaps it's not that people want the money, it's that they don't know what others are doing that are like them. And so there are other tools that become far more persuasive than having to consistently pay people. And that's what we look to unlock. And, and the, the great thing about that, of course, is if you can do it uh, properly and it actually works, it's cheaper because you don't have to pay people. You can just get people to, to, do, to change their behavior simply by getting them to conform to social norms. And that's a wonderful thing if you can get sort of group psychology and groupthink working on your behalf to get people to change their behavior in a way that is hopefully of some benefit to society or to a, or to a co company or to whatever it is objective that you're trying to achieve. So it's, it's fascinating. And, uh, and uh, there, you know, there are so many books. I think we've talked about this with other guests as well. Your colleague Dan Ariely has written three or four excellent books about uh, precisely that, about how people think they're rational, but, but not always. And in fact, some of the mistakes they may, that they make are predictable. They don't even realize that they're consistently doing things that are not rational because they don't fully understand the gravity of what it is they're being asked to do, and they don't think it through, and they just do what everyone else does. They go with the flow. So if you can get people to change the flow they're going with, you can change the outcome. Exactly. It's the path of least resistance for the most part. Um, people, I often say that I will let an apple go bad because it's just not cut or it's not washed. It's like sometimes there's really small things that get in our way and we just don't do the thing that's good for us. And, you know, you talked about Dan's books, but there are also thousands of papers and so many brilliant researchers out there that are doing incredible work. That work often stays locked away in academia. And so we like to think of BE Works as that bridge so that our clients and um, 
you know, the, the industry at large that are interested don't have to read all the papers. We do all the reading, then we make the connections to real world applications so that there's use to all of this work that's being done. And at BE Works, do you work, is it 80% with business and 20% with government or is it more 50-50? Because I know there are private sector and public sector applications. So I'm wondering about what you do at BE Works. Yeah, that mix is probably more like a 90 private sector, 10 public sector. It's a lot smaller. There are a lot of other wonderful behavioral science agencies that are specifically focused with the government. Um, and the governments have their own units. So there are several in Canada that work directly with the government. So we're, we're more on the private sector side. Good. Okay. I wanted to talk to you about optimism because uh, the, a, a major tenet of, of the book Bullshift is optimism bias and the risks associated with excessive optimism. And I want to be very clear to everyone who listens and watches, I'm an optimist. I think optimism is a good thing. But I do think that there could be risks if taken too far. So I'm wondering what your take is. What's your, what's your view on optimism in general and optimism bias and its role in, I, I suppose, specifically in portfolio management? Yeah, I agree with you, John. I'm also an optimist and I see it in myself. There's a lot of positivity that I see in the world and I find it extremely motivating. And that is really the upside of optimism is that it helps us get through challenging times a lot faster. There is light at the end of the tunnel and we often see it that way. What I have to do in my personal life is make sure that I am surrounded by people that are not as optimistic as me and that they're viewing the same situation with a different lens and I know who those people are on my team. And if they're listening, they know who they are as well because it's a good balance that we give to one another. But if you think about the, the why our brains are wired this way, we had a lot of turmoil historically for thousands of years. Life was not as easy as it is today. Um, things were extremely challenging. And so we needed this bias of positivity to get us to survive all of the challenges that we faced. Now, with all of the comforts that we have, the optimism, excessive optimism can be, can have its consequences, let's say. I don't wanna say it's necessarily a bad thing, but when it comes to portfolio management, it can create the sense that we have less, we have a higher likelihood of positive things happening to us. So that's really the definition of the optimism bias. We believe that good things are more likely to happen to us than to other people. We know that's not true. We believe we're better drivers than other people. We believe we're healthier than other people. There's all of these things that help boost our self-esteem. And it also leads to this higher perception of control that we have control over the situation, we have information that other people don't have. So you put those things together and it, when it comes to managing your own portfolio, these biases can lead you to take riskier um, you know, investment decisions. And those are not necessarily good for you in the long run, uh, as we know from the work that we have done. So it can be, there are consequences to excessive optimism here. So I'm wondering about making decisions prior to um, circumstances playing out. When you're thinking about how you're going to build your portfolio and design your portfolio, my view, and, and again, I'm curious, I don't want to put words in your mouth, and please feel free to just disagree if you do, is that we as a society have allowed, um, because we've had it so good for so long, 
we've allowed our, let's call it resiliency, our anti-fragility to atrophy. And we're not as tough as we once were because we haven't been toughened up by hard times. We've, we've in fact had it so good for so long that we have come to expect things to be good for the indefinite future. And as a result, we will likely be ill-prepared for something bad should something bad happen. And I, and I guess that's where I'm thinking about, as we say, the risks of being excessively optimistic. I think 19 times out of 20, I've said this many, many times, 19 times out of 20, people benefit from being optimistic. My concern is about the one time out of 20, or whatever it is, and I don't know if it's 5% or 2% or 10%, but it's, it's, the, it's the small minority of circumstances when we have a genuine hardship that because we've gone so long without having to experience that hardship, we're not really ready. We think we're ready. We tell people we're ready. We tell ourselves we're ready. Yeah. But if, if we've never experienced it, we don't really know. What are your thoughts? Yeah, absolutely. I think you've called upon another bias there, which is the representativeness bias. Like we're looking backwards and we're saying that the patterns that have happened historically are going to repeat themselves. And as you said, if those are, you know, it's been a rosy outlook in the past, we haven't experienced hardship, we are going to believe that more of that is highly likely to continue. So that is feeding into the optimism bias. We're using the past as a measure of what's going to happen in the future. Um, I think it's a challenging, the current system is not set up to address the optimism bias or any of these biases that occur. We're looking at things like the hurting effect, what other people are doing, and that's getting much more prevalent with social media and different influencers trying to get people to buy certain things. There's a great degree of a loss aversion that we have and a fear of missing out. So there's bandwagoning that's happening, you know, especially in the cryptocurrency world where, well, I know somebody that made a lot of money or the market's increasing. And so we end up taking a lot more risk without really even knowing how these things function or why we're doing it. We see other people doing it too. And so we take it upon ourselves to do the same thing. I wondered, I wondered about hurting because you've got a background in social psychology. One of the things I haven't spoken to other guests about, and I think you'd be a perfect person to weigh in on this, is um, the, the impact and the, and the research that's been done by some of the more prominent social psychologists, Solomon Ash, um, Stanley Milgram, Emil Durkheim, people who have been very influential in helping us as, as a society to understand the way group dynamics has an impact on decision making. Can you perhaps share some thoughts with regard to social psychology? Yeah, absolutely. So as you had mentioned, there's a lot of wonderful historical research. Some of the most famous ones is a group of individuals sitting around the room. They are, in fact, all in on the study. They are, they're, uh, there's one confederate, one individual that doesn't know that an experiment is being done. They are looking at a number of lines. One is quite obviously longer than all of the others, but everyone around the table says that the shorter line is longer than the obvious correct answer. And the experimenters are looking to understand how much we are willing to conform. How much do we go with what the group says? And of course, it's an extremely large proportion of people, despite knowing what the right answer is, we tend to conform to what everybody else in the room is saying. And this was some of the very first sort of brilliant demonstrations of this social norms or conformity that occurs amongst individuals. 
it's been used. It, so why does that happen? There's a lot that we don't know about. We are social animals. And so we turn to the behaviors of other people to give us signals of what we should be doing. That's been very adaptive for us. We can't learn it everything. We are dependent on our peers. So we have to look to other people in order to survive. You go to a new country, for example, and you don't know what the norms are, you're going to look around at people that appear to know what they're doing, and you're going to follow what it is that they're doing. So it's a good thing for us to do this. But in a lot of instances, when I think when it comes to managing money, we don't know and we don't talk about what other people are doing often in our private lives, how much money they have saved. The signals we have is what people are spending on. And that's made a lot worse with what we're seeing in social media is people are, you know, betting risky or they're spending money on a lot of things. And that is also what pulls us away from saying, now I'm going to be a bit more present biased and go with what everybody else is doing because surely nobody else is saving either. And so that's what leads us into some of these traps. So the question is, how do we make the behaviors of others, the correct behaviors, more salient. And I don't think that the industry has really solved that problem. They're trying to do that in the energy sector with now bills that are being redesigned saying other people in households like you use this much electricity, or you might want to set your thermostat to X degree. That's what other people are doing. And so these are all of these individual behaviors that we don't know others are doing, and they're starting to be surfaced. And I think it's a very powerful mechanism for getting people to do the right thing. If you think about, for instance, recency bias, when you, when you think of the different biases people have, uh, I like to tell the story of I was listening to a podcast a couple of years ago, shortly after COVID hit, and the two people that were bantering back and forth, much like you and I are right now, one of them was a portfolio manager, and he said, oh yeah, I, you know, it was really tough. I had to get my clients to, to stay the course as we went through this massive white knuckle scare of, of COVID, and the markets dropped by a third, and it was scary. It was the worst time of my life. Uh, and, and the person interviewing was, oh, tell me more, tell me more. And I couldn't help but think, but you know, the, the peak to trough drop in markets as a result of COVID happened in February and March of 2020. It lasted five weeks. And then we hit a bottom and started coming back up again. So again, back to my point with regard to resiliency, and in this case, recency bias and framing and all the different biases we talk about, we now have people thinking that they're heroes for enduring a five-week drawdown, as if five weeks is at all reasonable or, or what you might expect. Um, 50 weeks is, is more likely, and 500 weeks is not out of the question. And, and yet we think we're heroes because we can endure five weeks of drawdown. And it's, it's, right. it, it amazes me that people have moved the goalposts in such a way that they can be self-congratulatory about things that previous generations wouldn't have even batted an eye over. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's an interesting point. And what we find too is that those individuals that are checking their portfolios more frequently tend to make mm -hmm. poorer decisions. And so it can be really painful if you're checking every single day and you're obsessing over it. It's a long time to endure that pain and that loss that we feel. So it's that loss aversion looming much larger, larger than the equivalent gains. So if there is a way where we could kind of put controls in place, add a little bit of friction to checking in on our portfolios, make sure that there was something that popped up that reminded us that, you know, it's, it's going to be okay or what the right outcome is that we should be just something that primes people to be prepared for what they're going to see 
getting them to shift into longer term thinking rather than the present moment. I think there's a lot of interventions that are missing in the way that these platforms are designed, especially as people are taking on self-directed investment. Are there any, so we've already talked about taking a longer term view and you've, you've mentioned uh, helpful interventions that could help people. Do you have anything else that you can think of? If, if portfolios get choppy, if markets get choppy, what can you do to help people remain calm and zen? And you know, I knew this. I knew this would happen someday. I didn't know exactly when or why or how, but I always, you know, Mama always told me there would be days like this. Uh, how, how do you deal with it? Well, I think you know. I don't know that I have the silver bullet, um, but I, I think you touched on it now when you said, "I knew that this day would come." And I wonder what the role is of the advisors or the platforms to just remind people that while it's good right now, these days could change. So what is the plan that you are pre-committing to in advance? And pre-commitments can be quite powerful. We're not um, an example of a great pre-commitment that I'm thinking of now is we are not willing to save from the salary that we have today. It feels like there's a lot of pain of that loss. If we already know we're already within our means, but we're more likely to pre-commit to save future raises, for example, or a future bonus. It's money that we don't have today that we're willing to set aside. Um, and so I think that pre-commitments could be used in terms of what will you do? What are you pre-committing to in the event of a downturn? Are you pre-committing to, I'm only going to allow myself to check check in on my portfolio once a week rather than every day. So put these controls in place. What are So I think we can start to think about designing effective pre-commitments so that people are agreeing to it when they're in a better state, a colder state, or I'm gonna call my advisor. Like this is gonna be the sequence of events that I am going to do in the event that things go, go south. Cause then you're not in a panic, house is on fire and you're figuring out what to do in that moment. What you've just described was made famous by Richard Thaler in his so-called Save More Tomorrow plan. And I'm wondering if there could be an analogous uh, lesson in terms of panic less tomorrow. If you could pre-commit to, to uh, if you're an, uh, an advisor or a client, if you're working in the finance industry, or if, you, if you have investments, if you can commit to yourself to being more sanguine, to being more stoic, to, to you know, toughing it out no matter what, before you have to tough it out, I, I think that could go a long way. Yeah, absolutely. I love PLT, Panic Less Tomorrow. I think we can coin that together, John. It's a good one. Um, and it is really about some of these pre-commitments. And this is where I think it's on advisors to really know what to say in these moments as well. People are going to want to know that they are doing the right thing by doing nothing. So again, if we're gonna use social norms and say, hey, this is what I'm doing, or this is what other people that are really experienced, that get good returns that are in the same age group, they're all sitting tight. It's not that you're the only one you know, that's not making actions and so there is a risk to you. It's that those other individuals, those experts or people in your cohort that are a little bit more experienced, they are hanging on tight and it's the right thing for you to do as well. So I think it can get scary to feel like we're the only ones that are in this boat or that are feeling this fear and panic. So scripting for whoever you're working with, whether it's digital and it's built in digitally, whether it's an AI, we know that AI is not gonna do as well in market downturns. People are going to want a human to speak to. 
Um, but I think that there's a little bit more that could be done in terms of the communications that go out during this time as well. Great. All right, so we're wrapping up here. I, I always like to end my, my podcast with uh, two sections where I invite my guest to offer some comments on the industry, the finance industry in general, and optimism in particular. So the first is a section that I call, that's bullshit. Is there anything in the industry that you can think of that you are unhappy with, that you think that's probably not going to pass muster and, and I don't think this is really the way things should be? Mm, what a great question. Um, I think I would say that in that the hybrid approach between AI and humans needs to be better understood. I think that there's a shift towards let's go digital, but there is a very important role that humans play when it comes to market downturns that we don't feel like AI will, will be able to do the same. Um, that would definitely be one is to really study what that optimal combination of human to digital is and when is one more effective than the other. So there are certainly pros and cons to each side that when come together, I think is going to be better in the service of investors. I've heard a lot of people say that the future is cyborg, where, where it's not just uh, uh, it's not just all AI, it's not just all human, there's going to be some combination and we have to find that optimal mix. So the second half then of what I talk about, so we started with that's bullshit, you know, what is it that, that bugs you? I want to give you an opportunity now to solve the problem that you've just identified. So the second thing that we talk about is shift happens. If it was up to you, what would you do to improve the mix between AI and human advice? Well, I think that there's a little bit like I'm going to go down the research path in terms of what needs to be well studied right now. There's um, a great lab at the University of Toronto that's studying what kind of AI companions increase trust with individuals. I think that these labs and the research that's happening needs to look at it from an investment um, portfolio management perspective. What kind of advice should AI be giving? And then simulating what happens if there is some sort of a downturn, who are people going to be taking their recommendations from? So in my mind, I don't know that a clear answer exists yet. I think that more research needs to be done to study this holistically and BEWorks would love to be a part of that exploration. Perfect. Warda, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a pleasure. It's been fascinating. The time just zipped right by. Uh, I wanna thank everyone else for viewing as well. Uh, please be sure to like and subscribe because we always need to get more viewers and we really appreciate the support you give us. Word of thank you. Thanks, John. Thanks for having me. John DeGuey is a portfolio manager in Toronto and the author of the book Bullshift, How Optimism Bias Threatens Your Finances. Bullshift is available online and in bookstores everywhere. The opinions expressed in this podcast should not be construed as investment advice. Bullshift, the podcast, is produced by TalkShoe, a division of IOTUM. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. 
Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus.